I got this email and I saw the title and it was the vice president of medical innovation at Apple in Cupertino. And I said, oh, this has to be one of my friends doing a wind up. But he said, send me your number and I'll give you a call. And I said, what? This, this is, uh, this can't be right. And I remember coming up into my spare room and I had my kids clothes all over the bed. And I said, let me at least try and make this look like some kind of office. And um, meanwhile, Apple being Apple, the guy uh, is trying to FaceTime me. And my son is downstairs on my iPad. And you know, the whole things are connected. And he uh, sees this phone call coming through and he just declines it four times. And I thought, oh my goodness, that's it. I've missed it. Dr. Christian Ramdu was an ENT surgeon before co-founding Timper Health, the world's first all-in-one hearing health assessment system. To explain what that means, it's essentially a digital otoscope which is a scope that helps visualize inside the ear. Traditionally, this was an analog device, so no one else could see what you saw when you examined the patient. But with the Timper Health system, you can see what the scope is seeing on your phone screen, and then you can save that video to the patient's records. Also, unlike other similar devices, you can also use it to remove earwax. This thing is seriously beautiful as well. It was the winner of the Global UX Design Award. If you have a web browser handy, you can go to timperhealth.com to see what it looks like. Temper Health has also been very active in the battle against COVID. The system has been trialled in the University College London Hospitals Trust in the country's first ever teleontology service. This conversation is basically a deep dive into how Christian has achieved what he has with Temper Health, how he went from an idea in his head to his device being used by thousands of patients, as well as being adopted by Boots Hearing Care. He's a masterful storyteller. I hope you enjoy this episode. So Christian, could you start off by telling me a little bit about your story? So maybe start from the beginning. Uh, tell me about Timper Health and how you got to where you are today. Okay, so from the beginning, um, well, by background, as you know, I'm a clinical doctor. Um, I think I've been a doctor now for coming on, I think this might be my 12th year. Um, but Timper Health, uh, it, it was an evolution, I guess. So I think like all of us uh, starting out, in medicine and medical school, I wasn't, I don't know whether I actually knew that I was going to end up where I was. Um, certainly when I finished medical school, I, um, you know, was, I just started my F1, F2. And really at that point, I didn't, I actually didn't know what specialty I wanted to go into. And, you know, I was thrown into your F1 and it's just a really busy time. And I think when I hit my F2 job, and I think I say this to um, people, I don't think you need to know in medical school right I'm going to be a surgeon I'm going to be uh, a cardiologist uh, and certainly that wasn't the case for me I think people do know that and I think that's great but also people who did think like that in medical school have ended up I know doing different things um, and so it was really when I did my F2 job um, I did my F2 job as a first job as ENT and I in that job I met some really good guys I had a really um cool uh ENT Reg who had just started and he wasn't too far away from you know having been through all this process but I had a really um, inspiring consultant as well and um so that for me when I did that I, I remember speaking to my consultant he said well actually you know you I, I felt that I found a specialty that I didn't mind going home to and reading about and I think if I because of that I thought well if I like doing that then it's obviously a good specialty for me to um, go into but in that time as well I did a couple of projects one in particular about uh, looking at kind of opportunistic screening for hearing loss and that kind of sparked this interest in saying well how can we bring things to patients um, more efficiently 
but it didn't obviously with medicine it doesn't always you don't get an idea and it it happens overnight um i ended up just going on the the jumping through the hoops because i said right i actually want to do ent um i need to get into core surgical training and um so i remember jumping through the hoops and in it was really for me i just put my head down for four to six months and got a paper published did some audits presentations to 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 do as we would do um to tick those boxes and fortunately managed to get a uh, core surgical job in london and then um you know still on that process and i fast forwarded a few years and i became a registrar in um london as well um but at that point i really hit this thing of saying well great okay i've done that that's 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 excellent but what next um and the same issue came coming back to me i was seeing patients in my clinic and i was saying well you know this patient is coming in for something as trivial as earwax removal um why is that coming into the hospital into the hospital surely that can be done somewhere else and at that point um you know smartphones were really coming out and people were thinking well what more can we do with smartphones and i started to think about well this yes we've got this great technology and we've got a pathway which really doesn't fit and you've got this patient who has a problem with their hearing let's say they go to see their gp the gp will say okay we've got a problem with your hearing let's take you to the audiologist the audiologist will first thing have a look in the ear most of the time there might be some wax and if there is they have to go back to the gp then from the gp to be seen in ent because they're no longer offering that service of wax removal in the community we then had to remove it back to the GP and finally getting a hearing assessment. I thought there has to be a way in which we can bring technology into this pathway and make it better for patients. And fundamentally, the only way in which I was able to do that, and we'll probably come on to it later, was uh, take some time out of uh, training. And that was to do a PhD, because at that time, that was the only thing I could do. Um, and so then that's where the evolution of uh, Timber Health started of thinking, well, let's look at this as a project and see how I can make the service better and pathway, but also bring technology with it. And I think, you know, that's condensed seven years or six years, however many it was, into now, then when I kind of have evolved formalizing Timber Health. But that was where the idea kind of came from. So, uh, yeah, it was, it's been an interesting journey so far, certainly. So is Timper Health, was it at the time kind of a PhD project or was your PhD project sort of loosely related to it? How did that work? Yeah, the PhD project was loosely related to it because I think I was very keen on, you know, with a with a PhD, you've got to have a defined question. Um, but I needed some bandwidth, I guess, in order to kind of evolve the idea. And the actual product you see of Timper Health, there was a previous kind of concept which I was evolving, which actually was a new suction catheter which uh, we're still planning to, to bring out. But that was the basis of the, um, the PhD, as well as around hearing health as well. And then as I was doing that, I was saying, well, actually, there's another element. Well, you've got this great suction catheter, but what's the interface between that? And that's where then Timper Health uh, evolved. And um, it, it was loosely related, I guess. But what it enabled me to do, because when you're a medic, and you know you're busy on call and you've got it's such a busy time in the hospital and particularly in those early years when you're SHO and early years reg you're kind of the engine room of the hospital and so I think the um, being able to have a bit of time and clarity of thought enabled me to evolve evolve the thought but also I was getting great experience because I was 
kind of evolving my thought while doing clinical practice, which I think it's great to have an idea and we could all have great ideas. But I think if you don't know the problem really in detail of what you're trying to solve, then those great ideas don't actually work in practice. And I think that's where I was I was definitely trying to balance that because I was doing the PhD part time while still doing on calls as well. So on one hand, I see how doing a PhD does open you up to having more bandwidth to focus on this. On the other hand, I mean, I've not done a PhD. So my thought is that it might distract you a lot as well, because presumably you have a lot of other things you need to be doing to complete that PhD. So, I mean, looking back, was was it a good choice? Well, I think you're right. And I don't think that's the, the, it was just at that time, there's not many ways in which you can take some time out of, of, of training. And I think now it's been much, it's much easier to do that. And you're right. And for myself, I had to, the journey that I took was kind of taking that time out, realizing that there was a, there was something that I wanted to develop further. And then, you know, I, I look back and think, well, where I am now, because I went from ENT and to then switch into general practice to then develop Timper Health. And um, I think the journey, I probably could look back, so maybe I could have done it differently. But um, it, I think finishing the PhD, which is now I had to take a, I took a bit of a break to do it. I think it, it, it yes, it does distract you. But certainly for me, it seemed to work. But um, I think if you're doing a full time PhD, certainly there's no way in which you could do that. So then talk me through the next step, which is you've got this cool idea. And how do you translate it into something real? So the idea started evolving and I started seeing, well, you know, digital health was bringing, becoming big. And I thought, OK, how can me as a clinician, I think I am onto something here. And what happened was by um, almost stepping out to do that higher degree, people started to see, well, you must be an ex, you must be an expert in this uh, in this field. Um, and yeah, obviously, I, I, I know, uh, you know, about hearing health and changing pathways. But what it enabled me to do was um, go and talk to at really interesting places. So I did, did some talks at uh, the House of Commons and number 10, looking at a kind of a national hearing screening program for over 65s. That really thrust me into thinking, okay, there is definitely a huge problem here, not just in my locality, in my small little bubble of clinical practice, but nationally, and then actually globally. So I was like, okay, one, there's a problem which I need to fix. And secondly, I was thinking, well, okay, now then you have to develop the product to do that. So the way in which I did that, separate to kind of the academic work I was doing, was I thought, well, you know, the hardest thing is you need to get some money and you need to get at least a proof of concept. So what I did, I won um, a couple of prizes, of which there are, you know, as trainees, you can apply for some prizes. And um, I remember getting, I think it was about 10 or 20,000 to, or 10 and then another kind of prize to just build a proof of concept. And then I went to this really um, uh, small uh, AGM of this charity who was just talking about hearing loss. And I did a talk, but in that room, and this kind of made me think, okay, well, there is something that I can develop. In that room, there was the managing director of, of Boots Hearing Care, Specsavers, a lot of the big high street providers. And they all said, well, if you develop this proof of concept, it would be very interesting. And I said, okay, well, there's definitely something in it. So I got this proof of concept. And then the first route which I went down was trying to get some grant funding. And this was probably one of the uh, things which certainly opened my eyes up to kind of how there can be challenges in the system and how the system at the moment, you know, I think it's evolved certainly from where I was, um, but it was certainly challenging. And I went for this um, 
grant, government-funded grant, and it was for a fair bit of money. It was for £850,000. So I was like, okay. And um, loads of work went into it and worked with my colleagues on it as well. And a big team came together and we got down to the last five. And uh, we had an inclination that we were going to get it. So I was going off and obviously doing all these great talks. The hospital which I was working at the time, well, obviously they loved that, that we were building them up. But as soon as um, they got wind that uh, we were going to uh, get this grant money, I ended up getting this, uh, this, I remember it was an email and it just said, uh, you need to come speak to us because I think that we own all your intellectual property. And I was thinking, oh my goodness, this is, uh, you know, this is a big thing. And um, obviously it doesn't, I think for clinicians trying to innovate within the system we want to do what's best for our patients um and we really don't know much about this stuff but i then found myself becoming an intellectual property lawyer and i started looking i said well you know i've worked on this stuff before i even started here um you know i've done a lot of it in my out of hours and it's a real challenge but to cut a long story short you know the way in which they wanted the grant money to flow um I felt that we weren't going to really get the true value of that grant money. So in the end, I made a really big decision to say, um, actually, I don't want to take the money. And we declined, we didn't progress with the grant. Um, and those grants are hard to get. Um, so then I was thinking, okay, well, and that was a big call because, you know, that it just didn't work though. I don't think there was any kind of incentivizer. And I think the terms weren't right um, to allow me to have even got to where I was now. So then I thought, I remember speaking to a friend and I spoke to a friend and he said, um, I said to him, look, I really think I'm onto something here. And I think there's some commercial benefit. At the time, I also just got appointed to the NHS England Clinical Entrepreneur Programme. And I think I was one of the first 10 in the country to be appointed to that. Um, and uh, I, I started learning a little bit, a little bit more about commerciality. So I remember speaking to this friend and I said to him, I think I'm onto something here. And he said, um, well, I know this family office why don't you go and speak to them? Because I think they might be interested. They're looking to, you know, social benefits projects, um, you know, obviously to get a return on the investment, but, you know, something that's got some good social cause. Um, and it was, I just remember it was like Dragon's Den. So he he walked me into this room, my friend, and then he kind of left. And uh, so I was there pitching. And um, it was interesting because I think they got it. I managed to present to them what they wanted to hear and where they could see the real value. And then I got an offer of more than the money that I was getting for the grant. And um, at that point, <laughs> I was like, okay, this is a, this is something real now. And, um, you know, I, I had a really great uh, relationship with the investors. And I said, look, there's really big value in me um, maintaining my clinical background as well but obviously on the other hand you've got a large pot of money of them saying well why don't you got to develop it now so at that point in time I remember speaking I must have been about ST6 ST5 uh, ENT and I remember speaking to my bosses and you know it's one of those things where you you know all of them said you know as much you're on that trajectory to become the consultant that you know that you've you've um would want to become but again, you've got this opportunity in life, which I think they all said, you know, would this opportunity come back? And would you look back in five years time and think, oh, I wonder if I'd done that. So I didn't want to leave medicine. And I took the big decision to think, well, actually, I'm going to switch from ENT. Because at that time, when you're kind of coming to the senior years, you can really only focus on operating and making sure you're 
good surgeon. And I felt that I wouldn't have been able to do that justice. But I didn't want to leave medicine, so I switched over to general practice. Um, and they were really helpful. And, you know, they, they cut down some of my training. And it was a bit more manageable. But I was trying to manage running this company or this entity that was it was about to become. I had just had a, my first child trying to finish writing up my PhD and obviously trying to be a surgeon at the same time. So something had to give. Um, and so then as that evolved, I started and the first part of what I did was started to outsource a lot of the work. So it was really trying to me maintain what I was doing, but give a clear brief to those outsourced companies. This is what I want to be done. Um, and that was kind of the first stage of the evolution of a proof of concept, which I had, which was a big, robust kind of device, but it proved what it needed to do, but then go on to something which is much more refined, which was then the version one of our product. I want to pick up on something early in that story. So it's you getting offered 850k in the grant. Mm. I see that money, I go for it, uh, no second thought, sell my soul, whatever, whatever needs to be done. But it sounds like you kind of stuck with your guns a bit, stuck to your principles. You were like, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it right. Is that a general principle in, in your career and in your life that you have? Yeah, and I think the thing is what I felt was that it wasn't fair. I thought that it wasn't fair. And actually what I ended up doing was I felt, I was like, things need to be fair. And I think it needs to be an example of how um, clinicians can evolve. So what I did was when I ended up raising external money, I gave a share to the NHS. There's, a, there's, a, there's you know, they have a stake in the company and that hospital has a stake in the company. And I, and I did it on fair terms. I said, that is, you know, that's the way it should be done. So as the company grows, it obviously incentivized me and the team who are going to become part of it to grow it. But obviously I did some work in the NHS and why should the NHS not benefit? And that's why I felt that I, you know, as a principle in life, yeah, I think that it just, you've got to be fair to everybody. If someone has done work and someone has contributed and whether that be in a startup company, or if you're writing a paper, for example, if someone has contributed, they should be acknowledged for that. And I think it makes me feel better i mean I, I feel like i haven't done what some people i could have just gone down the route and said you know i've got external money that's it i'm just going to run with it but i said let me be fair to where i have done work and how we can all benefit from it because you know maybe maybe this could be an example of how innovation should happen so that you do incentivize the clinician because all of us have great ideas all of us will see problems in our clinical practice i wish you, know, you have that moment, and I'm sure when you become, you know, uh, when you finish your your uh, medical training, you'll say, "I wish there could be a way of doing this." And you think, "Well, how do I do that?" If there's a way in which you could be incentivized to do that and be supported, then I think that's how that's how innovation will happen. And certainly in our current climate, we've seen that accelerate now. Things having to be done differently. So you're in this position now. You've got this growing company. You've got you've switched from. ENT to general practice. So I'm, I'm guessing that's no easy feat either because you need to kind of retrain a little bit as well. And then you've also got a family. So it sounds like and presumably a social life and whatever as well. So you mentioned kind of briefly that you outsourced a bit, but can you talk me through how you managed to make all of that work? Yeah. So so in terms of um, getting the things moving and yeah, it, it, I mean, first of all, I think as a, as a as a doctor, it was, I mean, we adapt and we're quite good at adapting, but I think what I... Uh, it was a big change, you know, you, I was quite senior at ENT. I had to go down to SD1, 
GP, which was, you know, that was just a change. And But for me, I had to keep telling myself it's the long-term aim. It's the long-term goal. So, And actually, it was useful for me because I could see where our product fits is both primary and secondary care anyway. So I could really get the interface and understand that interface. And that kind of, when I said, you know, you have a problem, what I was able to do by, you know, maintaining that was really nail down what are the issues in the pathway and how is it going to actually change um but yeah it's because i was you know up till last year it was still only myself kind of in the company so in that in that two year two and a half year period i was um outsourcing the work so what i ended up doing was you know on my days off uh emailing kind of in the evenings it was kind of like do do your day job until five and then five till midnight do your um work in the company um but it was it was trying to be i think really clear to the team who i was outsourcing this is what i want and then on my days off annual leave uh you know i'd go down to the design house um days off from on calls go down to the design house and uh you know test it and make sure it worked and evolve the product and i think the the way in which the product evolved was because it was quite simple but there were some quite nuances in terms of how you help hold the device what the user interface needed to be um for me as a you know running this startup it was quite agile in the fact that i could leave them brief they could go off and do that i would be in touch with them and then there'd be an objective at the end that then we could evaluate and use and i think that worked very well um for me because it enabled me to yes although i say i was a single person there actually was a bigger team that was doing the work outside it's just i probably didn't have a team within at that moment in time to share the journey with because it was just kind of me and then yeah telling telling uh colleagues and and uh, my wife obviously how how it was going <laughs> and then can you take me to the through the next step so it's um you've kind of got a prototype or you've and you've got some money how do you make timber health to what it is today yeah so what, what we ended up <clears throat> doing so i was like look i've got this prototype it works proof of principle we need to make it clinically ready so with that team, um, I had a software team, an engineering team, and we got to this version one, which um, basically enabled you to have a good look inside the ear canal and perform wax removal. And that was one of the biggest blockades in the whole system, because I kind of look at it as saying, well, yes, you can develop a video otoscope or an otoscope to look in the ear. Yes, you can do a hearing test. But if in either one, if you look in the ear, you can't make, and there's wax, you can't diagnose anything. And if there's wax, you can't really do an accurate hearing test. So I was like, that is the thing which we need to sort out. And there was no way of delivering that safely in the community. So um, that was a period of about, uh, yeah, I'd probably say about a year uh, with evolution of that. And we got C marked on that. And um, we were trialing it ongoingly with some sites in the NHS, but in the private sector. And um, it was Boots Hearing Care who uh, looked at it, they liked it, they were using it, and they said, you know what, this really works. And the key, not only that it was unlocking the wax, but I wanted to make it that you didn't need an ENT surgeon to use it, you didn't need a GP. We've got this plethora of allied health professionals, why not allow them to do this as long as they've had the appropriate training? So we built a training program for them, Got did a train-the-trainer type model. I mean, it was very good because it was kind of like how you do surgery like do a train the trainer type model and um they used it and they really liked it and uh now uh that version one is the one that they're using nationally as their go-to assessment tool 
Um, and you know the wax removal part of their service didn't exist two years ago, and it exists now because of the Timber Health version, version one. So I kind of, in my head, understand how if you've got a purely digital product, an app or something like that, how you can go from nothing to something. So you start off by making some mock-ups, you show people, you shop it around, you get some money, pay some developers, and you've got it. Can you talk me through the specific challenges and the specific hurdles you have to jump through to get an actual physical device um, manufactured? So, and I think with our device, it's uh, it's interesting because the hardware part and the software part had to work together because you can't use the, you can't just pull down the app and start working. It has to work in the cradle. So there was a big element between matching the two. So what you see on the screen as well as what's going through the hardware. But they're really big challenges. I think the first thing was if you're developing a new device of which there isn't a device like this in the world, bringing all these elements together. One of the things key for me was to make sure ergonomically it worked because you're, you're taking an otoscope. I remember when I was writing my PhD, the first otoscope was described in the 13th century, I think. And then the modern day otoscope hasn't really changed for the last 50, 60 years. And you're building a new digital way of holding the otoscope. And, you know, the way in which it needed to hold was make sure it was balanced. And we had so many mock-up designs. And it was literally me going there, testing it, putting it in one hand, getting some other people to do that. And, and that was a challenge because I think that was a big design challenge because you're doing something completely new and there was nothing to mark it up against. And then as soon as you you, you nail down your design, then you have to go through this whole uh, CE marking process and manufacturing. Because in our version one, we did lower numbers. We manufactured it in the UK. And our version two is at much higher volumes and we're manufacturing it in Singapore. But you still have to go through the same process of CE marking. In the CE marking, there's a number of um, things which you have to do. There's, there's so many documents which you have to fill out and you do user verification testing. You have to make sure... You know, who is this, This which of these kits, um, what's the population it's going to be used for? And you have to read all of these documents and it has to have things like a drop test. Luckily, and, I, you know, you have to find the right team to do that. I'm not experienced in doing that, but I had a great hardware manufacturing team that was excellent at doing that and helped me walk through me, walk me through that. But all in all, with that, you build the hardware and you need to make sure that the software is marrying up. So those two had to to work together as well. And, um, you know, I think what we're really proud of is now we've got this um, version two, which has come off. And those two elements have been really well recognized. And we've won um, a recent award, which is a you know UX design award of showing how how good those elements are that come together. And, you know, the previous winners of those awards have been like, uh, I think it's Samsung, Mercedes-Benz, and I think, how have we ended up winning that? But that was the first stage. I think it, I learned a lot about the regulatory side. Um, and so now as we're doing, as we're finishing this regulatory side for our version two, things are a little bit clearer. So it was a lot of reading, I'd say, that I had to manage. So a normal otoscope is kind of like a nose hair trimmer with a little scope on it. And you kind of balance it precariously into someone's ear. And Help me, two parts. So help me visualize what the Timper Health System looks like in, in your hand. And then the second part is, I know that there's a, uh, you attach your phone to it and you kind of alluded to this, but doesn't that massively throw it off balance? 
so I think the first thing to address the uh, the front, well, actually I've got one here. Although they won't be able to see this on the podcast, but you can you can see it, Mustafa. But the the it'll probably help me explain it. Um, but the 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 phone part it, it doesn't because the way that it's been uh, developed, it uh, sits in your hand in your left or your right hand. But the way that we've um, designed it is so that it's perfectly ergonomically balanced. So it's really safe in your hand to use, um, and you can kind of look at look at the patient. And you know, one of the things which has been interesting is that people have been using it is the traditional otoscope. You would um, you have to be very close up to the patient's face to do that. What's been apparent, which was always part of our design, which is now more. Um, of, of kind of needing COVID is that you can actually be arm's length away and balance on the patient and watch what you're doing through the screen. And um, the way the traditional otoscope was built, there's a way of holding it like a pen. The way that we've built it is it's it's slightly different grip, but it's much more robust. You can brace against the patient as well. So if they move, your hand is up against them. And I think from a training perspective, and we are in talk, we've, we've just published a paper on medical students using it in comparison to a traditional otoscope, um, because you guys are going to be the future. And what they, you know, you may have had it already in your training, but you know, when you're going into a clinic and someone says, oh, have a look in the ear, and you can say, they say, oh, did you see the perforation? And you can say, yeah, yeah, no, I definitely saw it. But no one can tell if you saw it or not. Um, with this, it's be pre it's in that paper, it's shown that it's actually a really good learning tool because you're learning together and you're saying, well, you know that if you can't see the eardrum, you must be hitting the canal, but you can watch it on the screen itself. And I think that's what um, will be kind of a revolution in terms of how, you know, training anyway, you get about a week of ENT training in medical school anyway. And for primary care, for training, you'll be able to see it on the screen, but also then share that image uh, to any specialist anywhere in the world, but obviously in your locality. Um, so I don't know whether that that answered that, that those two parts of the the question for you. No, no, that did. Um, can you talk me through some of the other benefits of digitizing the otoscope? What else? What else can it unlock? The other thing, which one in like I said, you know, you've got to think of the problem. I used to be so in clinic uh, when you come to an ear clinic, and it happens, you know, even at the, the centres of excellence. Um, you see a patient and they may have a problem with their ear. The only way in which you document that is you draw a picture. And my drawing is different to someone else's drawing. The interpretation can be different. And what we've done here with this otoscope is you can obviously capture that not only as a static image, but importantly as a video. And so there are video otoscopes out there. But again, as then with the Timper system, what I was always looking because I looked at video otoscopes and they you know they're smartphone clip-ons that can that can um, look in the ear. But the thing which which I thought was needed was that if you look in the ear and there's wax, you then got to get up, go and get another equipment, and then remove the wax. Whereas in here you can look in the ear, there's wax. Okay, let me get my suction probe, remove the wax. Ah, there's the picture. And the reason why the digitalization is key is that I think that, you know, 30% of GP consultations are kind of ENT related. So why would you not have a way of which you could digital digitalize that image and send that off to a specialist, very much like they do in dermatology, even in ophthalmology, you go to your optician, you're used to them taking pictures of the back of your eye, it should be the same with your ears. What if you could know that um, your ear health, 
as I like to call it, um, may not be quite right. If you put that in context with a history and a screening test, if someone could do something about it earlier, you would obviously want that to, to happen. Um, and I think the um, that's why I see the key benefit of Timper is that it's an all-in-one system. You start them off by looking in the ear, wax, remove it. And then at the end, why not just, most people present with thinking they've got a problem with their hearing. Why not just do a quick hearing screen, bundle that all into a digital record and either give that to the patient or, or, or share it with a colleague to review? I'm going to be glib, um, but it's to make a point and to get a question in. So there's been digital otoscopes before Temper. Uh, there'll probably be many after it. There's probably been many during as well. Was there an element of you're at the right place at the right time? We've got this aging population, there's huge demands coming up. Was there an element of that? And secondly, like if not, or if so, what do you think separated you from some of the other manufacturers? Well, I think definitely, yeah. I mean, it's it's not even now, you could even say more so. Now, telemedicine, telehealth, taking things out into the community is something which has been happening. And Timper has been in evolution probably for a long time. Um, the aging population, yeah, I have a, I, I feel that there's a big way in which we could support that aging population, you know, the stigma attached to hearing loss. Um, but also, you know, I've said it before in, in other places where I talk, but it's locally, but also this this kit can be used globally um, to, to, to access, uh, for people to access services from places in the developing world. But what sets us apart, I think, from the competition, yeah, there's loads of video otoscopes and the video otoscope can look in your ear, but it can't do anything else. And I think what what I was really key on, if we were going to really nail this, was make sure that image quality was good enough. And I think you'll see if you go to our website, you know, the quality of image that we've received, that we get is, you know, it's endoscopic grade. Um, and the reason why I think that sets us apart is that if you were to do all of the things that our kit does, otoscopy, wax removal, hearing screening, and share it digitally into a back-end system, you need about four or five pieces of equipment alongside your desktop computer. Here, you've got one device. And yeah, you, you'll need to have a, you can review it with a computer, but you've got one device. And also, traditionally, those pieces of kit have been used by really highly specialized people. What we've done is taken a kit and democratized it so that it can be used by your allied health professional and make the pathway more accessible uh, to patients. Um, and I think that is what probably sets us apart. I think the fact that it's ergonomically easy to use, intuitive, um, the software that we're building has machine learning inbuilt into it. So it's going to tell you, is the eardrum normal or abnormal? And look at trends to say, oh, you're you know, if you've got diabetes, that uh, you pick up diabetes at year three or four down your journey, was there anything we could have picked up earlier? So I think that is what I wanted to do with the knowledge that I had, build a complete package. Because I, you know, I was one of those people, I said, oh, there's wax, right? Got to go and wait outside the microscope room. And the microscope, this is definitely not a microscope, because the microscope, you need to go into the hospital to do that. But this is a kit which enables you to do the majority of things in the community and make the pathway a lot smoother without carrying like a whole array of equipment. And now, you know, domiciliary care, you know, you've got the shielding population, you know, in a, in a, as long as there's the right precautions, why would you not be able to take that service to them? And that's the way medicine's going. People want to access their health as easy as possible. 
Um, and I think that's probably what sets us apart. I think it's, you know, it is, we've done a lot of comp- competitive analysis and um, there isn't a kit in the world which which brings all these elements together at the moment. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but when we were speaking on the phone before this interview, we spoke a little bit about marketing type stuff. And from what I understood and what I remember from the call, it sounded like initially you didn't go crazy on marketing. You were just kind of like the sleeping bear, uh, just building Temper Health up. And um, like today, you've got a beautiful website, you've got beautiful videos on there. Um, and it looks like you're putting more effort and more time into that. Um, firstly, am I, am, I, am I even right there? And secondly, how have you viewed kind of the marketing side of things throughout Temper? Yeah, no, you, you're absolutely right. I mean, um, actually, our website was only launched at the beginning of this year. We were already in Boots Hearing Care being used and no one would have known we even exist. Um, and the only thing which actually prompted me to kind of push on with that, because I was always of the, you know, not that we were hiding what we were doing, but I kind of felt, you know what, what I want to do is when we we do showcase ourselves, to because we could have made a lot of noise about stuff beforehand, but I think what I wanted to do was tell people, show when we were out there that actually, look, this product is here, it's ready, available, and you know it's gone through some robust testing because I think coming to the market too soon may have been detrimental to us. It may have not. It may, we may have been even further along. I don't know, but I think it served us well. I think that we, um, you know, the way in which now we want to market ourselves is very credible. We've got some research papers coming out. Uh, we're presenting at academic meetings, um, but also we're going to have some use cases of how it's worked as well. You know, Boots Hearing Care themselves have seen near 15 60,000 patients using our kit it, it shows that it's a safe safe piece of kit to use um and i think it's now i feel that we do have uh kind of some noise to make about ourselves you know this is only the second podcast i've done as well because i felt you know we just wanted to um put the message out correctly and i think now we will be starting to make a bit more uh noise about ourselves but again doing it in the right tone the right way and making sure we're 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 telling people about all the good stuff that's happening but also letting people make their own decisions about it um but yeah it was only because um i we were we've been involved in some work with apple as well and um i had been um i had somehow well i had been connected to the guys in cupertino and well this is just a funny story my my cousin um used to be one of their legal advisors and uh she said oh this looks like an apple product um why don't they know about it and i said well how how am i ever going to reach them and i remember it, it uh it, it, it was a friday i just finished clinic and um the, <laughs> i got this email and i saw the title and it was the vice president of medical innovation at apple in cupertino and I said, oh, this has to be one of my friends doing a wind up. But he said, send me your number and I'll give you a call. And I said, what? This this is, uh, this can't be right. And I remember coming up into my spare room and I had my kids' clothes all over the bed. And I said, let me at least try and make this look like some kind of office. And um, meanwhile, Apple being Apple, the guy uh, is trying to FaceTime me. And my son is downstairs on my iPad. And you know, the whole things are connected. And he uh, sees this phone call coming through and he just declines it four times and I thought oh my goodness that's it I've missed it begrudgingly then I think he called me on my phone and uh, in the end he uh, said I really like what you're doing you know the information that you're gathering the data obviously but also 
I think um, you should come out and see us. And I was like, what is going on? And uh, so I went out to meet them in Cupertino. And then a couple of months later, they were discussing us in a meeting of some sort. And I remember them saying, uh, Chris, do you have any other information that you can tell us about that people can see about Timper? Because you haven't even got a website. And I thought, okay, maybe now is the time to uh, <laughs> to, to, to get a website out there. And uh, yeah, now I think it's going to be, uh, hopefully we've, we've got enough things to say that is relevant so that we can really support patients in getting better care. Um, but yeah, it was a funny, it was that I think was the, uh, not that I didn't want to do it, but I thought, okay, maybe we're at the, if, if we're getting discussed at that level, then probably we should have a website. <laughs> I want to push back a little bit on this because Earlier in your story, you're um, giving a talk somewhere and uh, someone, uh, managing director from Boots, uh, Boots, Eye, uh, Boots Ear Care um, sees you. And that kind of serendipitously leads to some of the success you've had, I presume. So it's, and at that point, you don't have a developed product. So it sounds like when you were making noise, when you didn't have um, a product to show, that kind of did help you along the way. So I'm, that's why I want to push back. Like, What's your whole opinion of making noise before you've actually got something? Well, it wasn't It wasn't. I was making noise that we had the product out there. I was quite clear I didn't have it. And they just said, you know, if it did, if you do develop it, we'd be interested. Because what I was presenting at that meeting was saying the vision of how hearing care could be and, you know, the, the pathway change and some of the research that I'd done. So... I think, you know, you make noise about what is relevant at the time. And I think I was never trying to tell people I've got this product when I didn't. I was always saying, this is where I see it going. I want to develop this product. And part of it was, you know, you're kind of, yeah, you're making noise, but I wasn't doing it in big waves. This was a meeting of 12 people. Um, it was just serendipity that they had some big people in the room. Um, and, you you know, I had done enough stuff, I think, to show that it was credible of what I was achieving but I hadn't I didn't use any you know other channels to do that and I think I maybe it's myself as a person because I think that you know we could have done more um I just felt that I was doing the making the right messages across in the right environments at the right time and you're right yeah you can push back because yeah is that not marketing well it kind of is and you're kind of doing a pitch in your research or whatever you're presenting but um I I was quite clear even at that point that I didn't have it but what it did do when I did that and I went and pitched and they said actually if you develop this further we'd be interested it it obviously gave me validation of what I was planning to do because if I had done that talk and everyone said yeah it sounds good but we're not really that interested then maybe it could have been a different path I don't know I mean I still believed in what we were doing but um it may not have uh certainly even given the driver maybe an investor looking at it saying you know is there actually a value proposition because you're bringing a product completely new to the market that's never been developed is someone actually going to buy it so yeah no i agree with what you're saying and i guess my thing was my view of marketing is let's let's put it out everywhere and i suppose maybe we were doing maybe you're right maybe i was doing it kind of in a small small way and now we're doing it more (laughs) i've got two more questions Throughout your career, throughout Timper Health, have there been any habits or ways of approaching things that you think have helped you along the way? Yeah, no, I think for myself, um, it's definitely trying to be disciplined in in uh, and efficient in time. And I thought I used to think um, that I was more. I was. I always thought, oh yeah, no, I have, I was quite efficient. Um, but then 
it all changed actually personally for me when I had a, 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 my first uh, child because then I was not obviously being able to wake up when I wanted to. I was being forced to be woken up at like six in the morning and I think um, or five in the morning, whenever it was. Um, but then I realized that there are obviously so many hours in the day and because you know, I wanted to make that balance and be able to spend spend time, obviously, with my family. That I knew that in the hours of the day when I was working, I need to be ultra efficient. So it was, a, you know, I remember um, it would be okay. I'd try and wake up earlier than he woke up to do a little bit of exercise. I would then get him ready for nursery with my wife or whatever. Would then I'd then go out to the store to do do uh, um, GP or ENT, whichever time it was then, and then um, come back. Then it's the whole bath time. And then you then have that window, have something to eat and then have that window to do some more work. And I felt that I was trying to build a routine for myself that was a bit sustainable, obviously have a bit of downtime at the same time. Um, but I think having that structure to the day has probably been the best habit which I have tried to maintain and instill. And then I had to become more ultra efficient when I had a second child. <laughs> um, but it's all an evolution. I think you start to... I, ha I look back and I think that um, I have evolved the way that I have tried to be efficient in my time because there's sometimes, and you'll know even when you're studying, sometimes you just hit a wall and you're like, you know what, there is nothing going in. I'm not actually being very efficient. I think it's having the mindset to say, you know what, this is probably the time just to take a, take a couple of hours off, do something different, and everyone should think to do that in whichever way um, almost they find is their downtime and I think it, that I think is probably the most important because the startup journey is not easy it's not it's sometimes you know now I've got a great team uh behind me but you know it's still a journey which you always will as the startup kind of founder you might feel you're always doing it on a in a uh solo way but actually I think sharing the journey is also very key to that because otherwise you can become too laser focused on certain issues and sometimes you need someone else to look at it from another end. So it's definitely finding uh, some discipline in terms of your time, but also sharing your problems as well, which I think is the case even in medicine. Like we have a problematic case, you'd, you'd want to get advice from colleagues. And I think there's been a, definitely a transition of how I like to run the company in the fact that everyone has a voice, whether you're most junior from the tech side whether you're from uh, a different but everyone should be able to have those open channels of conversation as you do in your medical team teams do you have any books you would recommend looking into yes so there i think there were a couple of books which i le read along the way but the one thing one book which i think you know you could read all a lot of books about startups and how to set it up and yes they're really really helpful but then when you actually have a product and a business and you're trying to create a business model, I think as medics, maybe we don't know that intuitively. And one of the models that we have for our business is it's not a, it's not a transactional sale. You don't just buy it. It's not a true medical device because the software has such a big part of it. It's actually a license. And so I wanted to understand how the SaaS model works. And there's a book which... Um, it was a friend who actually got it for me. He he said, I think you'd really, really like to read this. And I found it really, really good. It's, it's called um, Subscribed by Tian Zhu. And he's the, he, he basically takes you through how his company evolved into becoming a true SaaS model. 
And, you know, you hear about SaaS models with Amazon and um, so on. But what it ended up doing was it's really easy to read book. And for me, I remember reading it on the tube every day and I was thinking, oh, you know what, that's how our business could work. And I really wanted that because in, the reason why I wanted to go down this license and SaaS model was what I didn't like in the um, in medicine, I guess, was you'd get all this nice, bright, shiny piece of kit. But then in, in, let's say, a year, two years' time, the kit would be redundant. And um, what I liked about our model is that every time something is evolved, you get the latest and greatest software. And I found this really, I'm showing it to the screen, but a really, uh, really good model that really um, has kind of underpinned some of the business models that we're using at Timpanel. So I would recommend it. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you want to find out more about Timper Health, you can go to timperhealth.com. That's T-Y-M-P-A health.com. You can find all my links by going to bigpicturemedicine.co.uk. And if you enjoyed this episode, then please consider leaving a review on iTunes. Thank you.